0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In early 2015, public health researchers determined that the U.S. population was exposing itself to a potential carcinogen, 4-methylamidazole, or 4-MeI, which is produced during the creation of caramel color. For sodas. I knock back two or three diet sodas most days, but I wasn't worried about a cancer risk because I knew one thing the headline-skimming public did not. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts.
1: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlaz, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.
0: When you hear the word chemicals, your mind probably goes to things synthetic and potentially harmful. If my second grade science teacher is to be believed, Shout out to Mr. Estebski if you're still out there. Everything in our world is made of chemicals. Everything from water to warfarin, benzene to breast milk, is or is made of chemicals. And most of them we're pretty cool with, at least situationally. It's utterly impossible to avoid chemicals, but it's critically important to understand how these chemicals affect us. This can get tricky, because the 7.7 billion people on Starship Earth are all slightly different to one another. We all know to stay away from poisons like mercury, where ingesting 200 milligrams will kill you, or polonium, where 200 milligrams is enough to kill 10 million people. There are some chemicals which only certain people are sensitive to, but those people are exquisitely sensitive. Then there are some chemicals which are pretty much toxic to everybody. Outside of individual physiology, there are criteria that determine if you're walking on sunshine or if you'll look and feel like death on two legs, perhaps the most important of which is your exposure to the chemical. This basic concept of toxicology is summed up with the phrase, the dose makes the poison. Catchy, isn't it? This sensible sentence comes to us across five centuries from the physician Paracelsus. The very first thing you must know about Paracelsus is his full name. If you're not sitting down, you may want to grab onto something sturdy Philippus Aureolus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheimborn. Isn't that an amazing moniker? Born to a chemist father in 1493. Paracelsus is sometimes called the father of toxicology. He was also a physician, botanist, alchemist, astrologer, and general occultist. Paracelsus was an alchemist, though he eschewed the common goal of Chrysopoeia, the creation of gold from lesser metals.
1: Many have said of alchemy that it is for the making of gold and silver. For me, such is not the aim, but to consider only what virtue and power may lie in medicines.
0: He was the main figure associated with lactrochemistry, an early predecessor of pharmacology that combined alchemy and medical principles. Paracelsus rejected Gnostic medical traditions like cautery and amputating injured limbs. He advocated instead for keeping wounds clean of infection and allowing them to heal on their own. It's revolutionary stuff, I know. He felt that sickness and health in the body relied on the harmony of man, the microcosm, and nature, the macrocosm. He stressed that man must have a certain balance of minerals in his body, and that certain illnesses of the body have chemical remedies that can cure them. This sounds so simple and obvious to us now, but imagine if somebody walked up to you and told you you were sick because you didn't have the right amount of the right kind of rocks in your body. You'd tell them to get stuffed. Paracelsus pioneered the use of chemicals and minerals in medicine, coining the name for zinc, though he spelled it with a K, which looks like a comic book sound effect. His original writing, which we've condensed down to the phrase The dose makes the poison, went as follows.
1: All well, the thing isn't gift.
0: Crap, Universal Translators on the Fritz again. There we go.
1: All things are poison, and nothing is without poison. Only the dose can make a thing not poison.
0: In other words, it's the amount of a substance a person is exposed to, even beyond the nature of the substance, that's really the key. For example, a small dose of aspirin can be beneficial to a person at risk for heart attack or stroke thanks to its blood-thinning properties, which is why you never take over-the-counter pain relievers before getting a tattoo, unless you want the artist to hate you. A few aspirin will get rid of a headache with virtually no side effects, but a bottle of aspirin will send you to the emergency room with hyperventilation, vomiting, dehydration, fever, and double vision and can even be deadly. And don't get me started on the complexity of children and aspirin. So, how can we compare the toxicities of different chemicals when they all produce varying effects, and these effects all require the intake of different amounts? Thankfully, science has worked out the LD50 for most things you'll encounter. LD50 stands for Lethal Dose 50%, or the Median Lethal Dose. This is the amount of a chemical required to cause death in 50% of animal test subjects. We use animals for these because conducting tests where you keep going until one round kills 50% of human test subjects are really hard to get funding for. The figures can be given for when the chemical is given orally, applied to the skin, or injected into the test subject. The findings can then be converted into figures for humans expressed in milligrams per kilogram of body weight. The smaller the lethal dose, and therefore the smaller the LD50, the more toxic the chemical. So in this case, one would be a very lonely number indeed, and two wouldn't be much better. The LD50 of our friend aspirin is 200 milligrams to the kilogram, by the way. Bonus fact. Aspirin is one of the best examples of genericization, where a brand name comes to mean that brand as well as all other similar products. The name became so liberally used that the Bayer Company actually lost their trademark on it. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, or even this episode up until this point, you'll know that I tend to give good news with one hand and take it away with The other. There are a number of caveats to the LD50 score. Firstly, as mentioned, it is the dose required to kill 50% of test subjects. Therefore, it could be said to be an inaccurate representation because it does not guarantee death. It's possible to take more than the lethal dose and live, or to take less than the lethal dose and die. Other measurements help to fill in the gap, though. There's the LD low, the lethal dose low, the lowest dose known to result in fatality, while the LD100, or lethal dose 100%, is the dose at which 100% of the test subjects were killed. Another issue with the lethal dose tests, and with animal testing in general, is that, while humans are animals, animals are not humans, no matter what my couch-napping puppy tells you. The sensitivity of animals to different chemicals varies from species to species, and can also vary from that of humans. Take, for instance, the alkaloid theobromine, the chemical in chocolate that makes us so blissfully happy to eat it. I need just a moment with my thoughts, please, I'm on a diet. Humans can stomach around 1,000 milligrams per body weight kilogram of theobromine. Thankfully, we don't have to be ever vigilant of theobromine toxicity with its vomiting, diarrhea, arrhythmia, and seizures, because your average 200-gram bar of milk chocolate contains a little under 300 milligrams of theobromine. Remember, we need to get to 1,000 milligrams, or 1 gram, of just the theobromine per kilo of body weight. So if you weigh 80 kilos, or 176 pounds, you need to eat... 267 chocolate bars. In one sitting. At my best, I could never defeat that many. Compare this with our canine companions, who can tolerate less than a third theobromine of what we can, and have lighter bodies, paired with the ability to eat comparatively huge amounts of food. Especially when they're hurriedly wolfing down something they're not supposed to and it's not all that hard for them to get to the lethal levels. Additionally, although lethal dose tests give us the comfort of quantification to cling to, the lethality will vary from person to person, depending on age, gender, medical conditions, other chemicals in the system, and factors we can't even begin to account for. Plus, knowing the lethal dose of a compound doesn't actually tell us all that much about at what dose symptoms of toxicity would begin to manifest. Some chemicals may have a high lethal dose, but a low toxic dose, meaning it takes a lot to kill you and only a little to make you wish it would. If you find that all this talk of toxicity without the soothing arpeggios of symptom of the down is giving you agita, rest easy with a little specificity. Sipping your morning cup of joe which, by the way, gets its name from the U.S. Secretary of the Navy, Joe Daniels, who forbade alcohol or anything stronger than black coffee on board ships in World War I. A second cup for me, or a seventh for the hubs, may lead to jittery hands and super spastic squirrel brain, but it would take half an ounce or 14 grams of pure caffeine to take a person out. That's over 100 mugs worth, depending on the strength. Your stomach simply can't hold that quantity of liquid. If anything, you'd probably die of water intoxication before you OD'd. Water intoxication? Oh yes! Drinking too much of the substance that makes up the majority of the Earth's surface and our own bodies can absolutely kill you. As many of us learned after a poorly planned and stupidly executed morning radio contest, Hold Your Wee for a Wee, cost the two DJs their jobs and a family their wife and mother. But don't fear your kitchen tap or filter pitcher. As long as you're not taking in much more than the one liter per hour your kidneys can process, you'll be fine. Also, water intoxication symptoms like headache, muscle spasm, and vomiting would tend to naturally keep you in check. What about little water or vodka in its native Russian? For a healthy man, A deadly dose of 40% alcohol would be one and a quarter liters, about 27 shots, in an hour, assuming he does not throw up at any point. Again, you'd feel so terrible in the process of doing it that most people would stop before hitting the lethal dose. Unless you're a 21-year-old man with all of your dumbass friends making you take 21 shots when midnight hits on your birthday and now the bar has to serve you. If you were standing outside smoking, waiting for your power hour, first off, stop it, you stink, nobody likes it, I can smell it from here. It would take 0.8 milligrams of nicotine, about 75 cigarettes worth for your life to go up and smoke. A brief aside, did anyone else have a middle or high school experience of one of your friends excitedly explaining how you could use pure nicotine to commit the perfect murder? with no clue of where to actually acquire pure nicotine? Or was that just my friend group? Hit me up on the social media, Facebook and Instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts and Twitter at brainonfactspod. But let's not kid ourselves. These days, if you're smoking, you're probably smoking the wacky tobacco, the devil's lettuce, cannabis, which it will be legal to grow where I live in T-minus, let's see, 65 days, 18 hours, and 43 minutes. Not that I care or anything. You've heard it widely touted that you can't really overdose on cannabis, and that's functionally true. I'm not saying you can't have a very bad experience with too strong of a dose. For the love of God, read the label on the new edibles at least twice if you're bad at math. But to actually do what Willie Nelson and Snoop Dogg have thus far failed to, you would need to smoke 1,500 pounds or 680 kilos in 15 minutes. Or you could eat it like a cow, but that would still require 48 pounds or 22 kilos in your gullet at the same time, and it's just not going to fit. No matter how big of a buffet terrorizing glutton you are. Now that I've taken the stinger out of some things that are generally bad for you, how about making you look twice at things that are actually good for you? Hey, everybody's got to have a hobby. An apple a day keeps the doctor away, especially if you feed him the seeds, which naturally contain cyanide, or rather, they contain amygdalin, which converts into cyanide in the body. Don't let it worry you if the occasional seed slips down. Or the sticker, they're actually completely edible with edible glue and everything. To get enough amygdalin to do you any harm, without eating more apples than is physically possible, you'd have to harvest 18 apples worth of seeds, and even then the danger is not clear and barely present. Seeds that are designed to be distributed by animals have tough outer coatings so the seed can survive the digestive process. You'll have to grind those 18 apples' worth of seeds up in a blender. And if you manage to do that by accident… just… how? Also, viewers of Dr. Oz, and welcome to the more responsible side of science reporting, we're glad you're here, may remember him kicking up a fuss and panicking mothers across the country that they were feeding their children sippy cups of arsenic in their apple juice. That was also not a danger, as the FDA readily proved. Personally, I try not to take medical advice from daytime TV hosts, especially ones who've been dragged before Senate subcommittees. Come at me, Mehmet. If cherries are more your thing, and they surely are in our household, same, same, but different. Cherry pits also contain amygdalin, as do the stones of apricots and peaches and the bitter almond. They actually contain a lot more than apple seeds. Only two or three pits can make for a lethal dose. But again, the hard seed coat is a saving grace, so you're safe as long as you don't chew them up like a psycho. Keep a keen eye out if you're shopping in a health food store, though, and want something to snack on. You might find yourself with a bag of what looks like almonds, but are actually apricot kernels. They'll be labeled correctly, that's not the issue. The problem is that the label will also say something to the effect of only eat two or three of these at a time because they contain cyanide. And who reads the labels word for word? It shouldn't even be legal to sell them as food in this reporter's opinion. Maybe a nice banana. They don't really have seeds since the Cavendish bananas that you buy in the store are actually clones. And they've got potassium, as anyone who's had the eating of them cure muscle cramps can attest. But you wouldn't want too much potassium. That would give you hyperkalemia. Hyper, meaning high. Cal, from the periodic table of elements for potassium. And emia, meaning presence in blood. And that can ruin your kidney's day. You'd need to shove down 400 bananas on your lunch break to make that happen. You know what else bananas have? Radiation. The potassium in bananas is potassium-40, which makes them very slightly radioactive. Brazil nuts, too. Their trees have an extensive underground root system, which absorbs radium in the soil like it's nobody's business. In the case of radiation, you'll have to eat a thousand bananas, but cumulatively across your whole life. Don't worry, because I subtly stopped talking about sudden death and shifted us over to micromorts. A micromort is your risk for sudden death, presented numerically. You've got a million micros before you get to a mort, though. Everything you do and are exposed to adds to your micromorts, from eating 1,000 bananas, which increases your micromort count by one, to summiting Everest, which is worth 40,000 micromorts. You can hear more about Micromorts in the latest bonus episode over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, where I hope it will be enjoyed by our newest supporters, Rick S., Jessica R., Barry S., Michael W., Alex P., Paul W., and Jellybean, and the nearly 50 other bonus mini-episodes, as well as early access, ad-free episodes, and the odd surprise perk in the mail. The one I teased in February is coming when my husband hooks up the 3D printer. There's a great clip from QI of the otherwise brilliant Sandy Toxvig struggling to understand the danger of the thousand bananas, and it never fails to delight us. I'll put it in our groups. We have both a Facebook group and a subreddit, though the easiest way to reach them is yourbrainonfacts.com social.
1: Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits. And captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist?
0: With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy, to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready, or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science, wherever you get your podcasts. If your mother told you to eat your carrots because they're good for your eyes... A, that's an exaggeration left over from British war propaganda, and we'll talk about that some other day. And B, she's talking about vitamin A. Vitamin A, or retinol, commonly occurs in vegetables in the form of beta-carotene, the thing that makes squash and carrots so lovely orange. It's also found in some fish and animal flesh. Vitamin A is a fat-soluble vitamin, meaning any surplus you take in is stored in your body fat. If you take in too much on a regular basis, it can actually cause your skin to appear yellow or even slightly orange. But uniformly orange before you start thinking about any unpleasant orangely colored people. Your skin would also be dry and cracked, your hair thinning, your head would hurt. I'm really starting to see a similarity, actually, but we're going to move right off that. With enough vitamin A buildup, it will kill you. If you wanted to die from hypervitaminosis A more quickly, get yourself a dripping chunk of liver from an Arctic animal, be it a polar bear, moose, or several species of seals. That'll kill you straight away. Okay, then let's grab a citrus fruit to get vitamin C. Vitamin C is water-soluble. Your body takes what it needs and you pee out the rest, right? Right? Sorry, Charlie, if you really apply yourself You can overdose on vitamin C. But in keeping with the theme today, you'll have to eat about 1,600 oranges. And I suspect the enamel on your teeth would be as soft as boiled peas before you got anywhere near finishing. Be mindful of how you season your food, too. The Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommend limiting sodium intake to less than 2,300 milligrams per day, equal to about 1 teaspoon of salt. While we are eating substantially more sodium than we should, about 3,400 milligrams per day, we're still well under the sudden-death level of 240 grams, or 9 ounces, or about 48 teaspoons. We, modern people in general, and Americans more specifically, also take in way too much sugar. The fatal dose of sucrose is 5 ounces per pound of body weight, or 6 grams to the kilogram, This would mean a person weighing 160 pounds would need to eat 10 5-pound bags of sugar. Though has anyone else noticed they doesn't come in 5-pound bags anymore? It's been downsized to 4 pounds or smaller. Some like it hot, but there's a limit to everything. 129 teaspoons of black pepper all at once will kill you, as could 130 teaspoons of red chili pepper flakes. Your body would probably stop you well before you got that far. But that may not be the case with nutmeg. As little as a few teaspoons of nutmeg can induce convulsions, palpitations, nausea, and possibly death, as people seeking a cheap high find out the hard way. I would drop in here a clip from Archer where Ray references nutmeg as Malcolm X tea, but I don't know how many people would recognize it, and explaining why I didn't include it probably just took more time than including it. My head is swimming, you say, Maybe I'll just brush my teeth and go to bed. Okay, but whatever you do, don't eat 24 tubes of toothpaste, or you'll have a lethal dose of fluoride. In case you know, that's a thing you were planning to do. Sometimes, though, the poison kinda is the poison. And the question is, how much can we feed to an unknowing public to maximize profits before people start dying en masse and someone cottons on? As the Industrial Revolution gained steam, no pun intended, people moved off family farms and into cities and factory jobs. Fewer people grew their own food, knew where their food came from, or even knew what they were actually eating. There were no rules about listing ingredients on food, and anything short of strychnine was fair game. Remember, this was the era of the heroin cough syrup for children, just for context. Common preservatives included sulfuric acid, copper sulfate, borax, which we use in laundry detergent, boric acid, commonly found in ant killer, and formaldehyde, most famous for preserving dead bodies. It wasn't uncommon for hard candy to have white lead. Milk would be stretched out with water. Formaldehyde would be added to preserve it. Chalk would be put in to make it look white again. And sometimes the dedicated deceiver would replicate the feel of a head of cream on top with pureed cow brain. Flour would be adulterated with clay and sawdust. Your morning coffee may actually be charcoal and ground-up burned animal bones. Nothing could be trusted. Nine out of ten pure maple syrup products sold in the state of Indiana did not actually contain any maple syrup. More than 85% of honey being sold in stores was actually corn syrup and food coloring, a damn cheat you still see today. Looking at you, KFC, honey sauce. But at least it's labeled. Both the maple syrup and the honey lies were unveiled by Dr. Harvey Wiley, chief chemist at the Department of Agriculture in the 1890s. Almost as soon as he got the job, Wiley petitioned the government to conduct similar experiments only to be rebuffed by his bosses under pressure from food industry lobbyists. Finally, in 1902, Wiley was given funding and free reign to test the safety of various food preservatives. His next step was to take on dozens of volunteers for a five-year series of experiments the media would come to dub the Poison Squad Trials. While you might think finding volunteers to ingest something harmful to the human body would be difficult, Wiley was actually inundated with requests from men wanting to join. Women, naturally for the era, were not eligible. Why would people be in a hurry to be slowly poisoned? Wiley was offering a bit of pay, along with free lodging and prepared meals for a minimum of six months, with the person otherwise being able to go about their regular life as they pleased. I mean, I'd think about it. All you had to do to get these perks was eat whatever was put in front of you, and agree not to sue him or the government if things went pear-shaped. The general method to figure out if the doses in common products were hazardous was to start with ultra-low doses and slowly increase it over time until the subjects exhibited adverse effects. The first substance in the dock was borax, which was commonly used to preserve canned meat at the time. The experiment hit a stumbling block early doors when volunteers were unable to overcome borax's strong metallic taste. Wiley had to pivot to giving them the borax in a pill. It took a few weeks, but the effects of the borax ingestion began to manifest, everything from headaches to depression, with symptoms worsening as the doses increased. A few months into the borax eating, volunteers briefly went on strike because the symptoms had gotten so severe, and Wiley cut the experiment short. The volunteers' vital signs were carefully measured several times a day, and they were forbidden from eating any outside food so as not to contaminate the findings. Volunteers were rotated out after each substance was tested for the same reason. They were also given a satchel containing various vials and containers for collecting urine and fecal samples. On balance, the meals were prepared by a chef, and served in a restaurant-like setting, and the men were expected to dress properly for dinner. This made for great press photos of what Wiley called the Hygienic Table Trials, but everyone else called the Poison Squad. Wiley recognized the importance of press coverage and would actually publish his findings monthly. Wiley and the Poison Squad were not popular with food producers— While efforts to block the release of his findings failed, various industry insiders took to attacking Wiley's credibility, claiming he was out to hurt American businesses. Wiley knew that if he was going to get politicians to take action, he would need to get the public putting pressure on them. Now it was time for the women to play their part. Empowered suffragettes and concerned mothers spearheaded the movement for what would become the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, aptly nicknamed the Wiley Act. I suppose we do have to give some of the credit to Upton Sinclair, whose book The Jungle was supposed to shed light on the conditions of slaughterhouse and meatpacking plant workers, but instead horrified the public with what was really happening to their steaks and chops behind closed doors. The less said about ground meat and sausage, the better. The Wiley Act established the Food and Drug Administration and put in place rules requiring listing ingredients on labels so consumers could know, at least to some extent, what they were actually getting. The idea at this point was not so much to regulate the industries directly, but rather to increase transparency so consumers could decide if they wanted to drink milk treated with formaldehyde. But the act, as written, left an alarming amount of wiggle room, loopholes, and technicalities for companies to exploit, culminating in the infamous elixir sulfonilamide incident. You can read more about that in the Your Brain on Facts book, in the section Unsungest Heroes. TLDR, 107 people, most of them children, were killed by a bitter medicine whose flavor was covered up with ethylene glycol, aka antifreeze. While we're being a bit downbeat, there was one death in the Poison Squad, but the man's family held no grudge against Wiley or the program. They understood the importance of what the volunteers were doing. The man's mother referred to her late son as a martyr to science. His death and the sickness of his comrades was not in vain. Though the Poison Squad is little known today, they were instrumental in the first significant step toward making sure food consumed in the U.S. is as safe as it is, and why you can go to the store and know that your milk is milk and not chalk water and brains. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. So what did I know about that cancer study and caramel coloring that the headline-skimming public did not? I know that I am not a rodent. The findings were that it could cause cancer in laboratory rodents. To get the same amount of caramel color that the lab rats got, I'd have to up my intake from two or three cans a day to about a thousand cans of soda every single day. That is a lot of fizzy pop for someone who spends as much time on mic as I do. Order your corporate voiceovers, phone menus, or audiobook narration from moxielabouche.com today. And as we established today, that quantity of caffeine and water would probably get you first. Remember, you can always find the script for the show and links to the sources at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Do you
1: love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries,